Proudly coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Frontier Podcast. I'm your host, Ledge, and we are powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and join the conversation at the Frontier Pod on Twitter. Giddy up! Burke Holland is a Nashville-based developer advocate for Microsoft. He's one of those rare people who's had a developer advocate position since way back in 2011. So I asked him about his path to what we have now started calling DevRel. In this episode, Burke answers questions like, what is a developer advocate? What does a developer advocate do? And even, how do you become one? We also talked about finding your own authentic writing voice and how to grow your advocacy platform through writing. Finally, I asked Burke to run me through some of the most exciting features of Microsoft Azure that every developer should be aware of, including the VS Code IDE, Azure Cognitive Services, and Cosmos DB. Hey, Burke, good to have you, man. Thanks for joining us. I feel like I was joining a meeting where they're like, uh, say your name after the tone. I always say Scott Hanselman, <laughs> which is not my name. So, you welcome. Go. You know, hey, can you give... Um, Two, three minute background story of, you know, yourself and, and your work so the audience can find out who we're talking to. Uh, sure. So I was born in the summer of 1978. It was uh, a warm day, uh, 4.35 a.m., a little earlier than expected, uh, but still good size baby, about eight pounds, seven ounces. Is this more detail than you wanted? Can you do that in three minutes? <laughs> yeah, so I'm a I'm I'm a uh, developer. I live I live here in Nashville with you, and I work for Microsoft as a developer advocate, focusing on uh, Azure, the cloud, to the cloud, to the cloud and beyond. Yeah, exactly. It's probably a better, more concise intro. So I got to know, you know, everybody wants to know, right? How do, how do I become an advocate? You know, I mean, because it just sounds like the world's coolest job, and you know, what does that mean, and and how do we get there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I, there's so there's a couple of different questions here. I think one of them is, what is an advocate exactly? Like, what does it do, and then how do I become one? So the first thing is, we talk about what a developer advocate actually is, because I think there's a lot of confusion there. I once saw on Hacker News, which my first mistake was reading something on Hacker News, but I saw that someone said there. They said developer advocates are the Instagram models of technology which was so depressing because I would just make a terrible Instagram model. People on the podcast can't see me, but you can see me. It would just be a disaster. So we look very similar, but we do we're not, actually, we're, we're kind of hurting for hair actually in this, this podcast, but yeah. nobody needs to know that. If I could ask God one question, it would be why, why am I bald? So um, to, let's talk about developer relations for just a second. Um, it's sort of a new field of study or focus that's gotten really popular in the last few years, I've been in this field for about eight years now, back when it was called evangelism. So if we back up historically, it was called evangelism. And if we go all the way back to the beginning, the term that actually comes from a guy named Guy Kawasaki, who worked at Apple. And he was the first one to popularize this, this idea of people who get paid to go out into the community and represent a product that's not in a sales way. So at Microsoft, we have this, this, this thing sort of mantra that we use in developer relations, which is help first and sell last. So the goal of developer relations is really to 
know, raise awareness about the things that, that Microsoft makes and does specifically in regards to Azure, but to do that in a way that um, has integrity. So if I'm talking to someone who has a specific need around serverless, Microsoft might be the best option for them, but it might not. And so my job is to make sure that they understand everything that they need to know about the Microsoft serverless platform, but also to help them make the right decision. Because if they're better off on another platform, then that's where, that's where they should go. Because in the, at the end of the day, if you, if you force people to use your product, you talk them into using a product and it's not what they really needed, they're not going to be happy. But if you help them find the right solution, what they'll say is, well, I don't use Azure, but you should, because I know those folks and they're really nice and they're extremely helpful. So they'll actually advocate for you, even though they don't use your product, which seems a little bit weird, but that's kind of sort of how human beings work. So that's developer relations is really all about that. It's about being um, a representative for Microsoft and for Azure in the community, but not in the typical way we think about, which is that I'm here to sell you something. I don't have any quotas or figures attached to me. So then we as developers can have a very honest conversation. And so how do, how do you get there? I mean, that does sound amazing. I mean, oh, you're kind of like, it's like new wave marketer, evangelist, you know what? I mean, there's so many things there. Like uh, you, you didn't wake up in the morning, you know, 15 years ago and be like, I'm going to be an advocate someday, you know? So like, what's, what's the path? And it, if folks are interested in that, uh, description that you just had, because I think that that is compelling, then, you know, what's the path to, to kind of get there? Yeah, it's, that's a great, I, I think that's sort of the, the one that everybody sort of uh, is trying to crack. Uh, for me personally, I fell into the, the career back in 2011. Uh, I went to my first tech conference down in Chattanooga. It was called DevLink. I don't know if you, did you ever go to DevLink or hear about DevLink? I didn't go to it, but I think I've read smatterings about it. Yeah, but, you know, Chattanooga. Wow, cool. You know, <laughs> big, big Tennessee mesh in there. Yeah, right, exactly. So back in the day, that conference was sort of the big Tennessee tech conference. So it used to be in Nashville, then they moved it to Chattanooga. And that was one of the first events I ever went to. And while I was there, I was just networking with people. And I met a guy who was working for a company called Telerik. And they were building a product called Kindo UI, which is a JavaScript framework. And he and I talked and they were looking for someone to come be a developer evangelist. And they hired me and I accepted the position, not knowing anything about it. And, and that's how I got into developer relations sort of entirely by accident. But for me, it tends to be a good fit because what I often will say about myself is that I'm a, I'm a moderate developer, so I'm, I'm good, but I'm not Google good. In other words, Google's never going to hire me to come write their search algorithms. Okay. I'm never going to pass a Google whiteboard code review ever, but I am a decent communicator. In other words, I can code, but I can also communicate fairly well. And developer relations is exactly that. It's for people that can code, but they can also communicate very well. And if, if you can do those two things and you feel like you're good at, you know, or you're a fair coder, but a good communicator, then you would be excellent at developer relations. Yeah. I love that because it, it really gives you, um, that's very tangible. Thank you so much for that. You know, I think it sounds like this mythical sort of 
unicorn job, you know? <laughs> and, um, but that, that makes a lot of sense, you know, that it, it brings it into terms where like, Hey, maybe I don't need to be in sales or be a sales engineer or, you know, work for the marketing team. Like I can, I can kind of be an engineer where I know how to be and, and talk to other engineers. And, uh, so we, you and I off mic talked a little bit about, you know, ways to do that. And, um, you know, one of the ways that I've seen you be successful is in, uh, in the writing arena. And, you know, you have sort of these, these funny medium posts and, and tweets, and you've done like a lot of just neat stuff that makes it feel real tangible. So love if, if you would talk about, you know, how, how, um, you know, our engineering friends can, can get better at and get involved in the, the writing and, and why that's important. Yeah, sure. Uh, so for developer relations, one of the things that is tricky about the job is that when you get into it, nobody really tells you what to do. So, and I don't know, every company that I've worked at has been like this, but they sort of hire DevRel people and then DevRel people are engineers, right? In Microsoft, we are in the engineering organization. So we're just right there alongside engineers that are building the products. And the question then becomes, well, what are you going to do as a developer advocate? And there's not a lot of structure there. So we think in terms of developer advocates, we kind of think about going to events like conferences and hanging out and doing talks and and drinking beers and basically being an Instagram model of tech, right? But that's that is definitely part of the job. But there's a giant part of the job that occurs when you're not doing those things. So first of all, you have to have enough credibility to get on a stage to talk about any subject. That, that's not to say you have to be the foremost expert, but you do sort of have to establish yourself in the community as, as being uh, someone that has opinions and thoughts about certain subjects and maybe is looking at things in different ways or has dug into one specific topic. And one great way to do that is to write. Um, writing is one of those things where it's kind of like jogging or going to the gym. Um, before you do it, if you don't do it a lot, you don't want to do it, number one. And then number two, you can barely do it, right? So you go to the gym and you can't lift anything because you ju- you haven't been lifting. Or you run and you only make it a half a mile before you feel like you're going to die because you just haven't been running. So writing's the same way. It's just a muscle and you have to flex it over and over and over again. But it's one of the best ways to begin to engage in topics with people at scale. So you could think about if you went to a conference and you keynoted a big conference, like, like the biggest tech conference we can imagine. Let's say you did the keynote at OzCon, which is an enormous conference. And maybe let's just go on the high end and say there's 5,000 people in the room. That's a lot of people. You can write one blog post and get 10,000 people to read it a whole lot easier than that. And anybody can do that. You don't have to be given a keynote stage. The power of that cannot be understated. Right? This is sort of the the beauty of the internet is that everybody is now a reporter. Everybody can run their own media company. When it comes to writing, I would have, the advice I would give people is just to sort of do it. And there's a lot of tips and tricks that I give, but the, the ones that I think are the most important are, first of all, just to just do it would be number one. The second one is to just get started writing about something, anything, and just write. So a lot of times people are like, I'm not sure how to start this article, which I would say, just start writing, write the whole thing, and then go back a second time and just take things out. Just take out all the stuff that sounds superfluous or just isn't good. And you'll be surprised at how much of a coherent article you can get just from that process. 
Another trick that I use quite a bit in writing is to bring in pop culture references. So the more you write, the more you figure out your voice and your voice is sort of what do you bring to the conversation that's kind of unique. And everybody has their own tone. My tone tends to be extremely tongue in cheek. So I use a lot of pop culture references, a lot of self-deprecating humor because that's just, that's sort of my niche. But then you have people like Adi Asmani who works at Google, who writes these huge long form technical papers um, and that's his niche. That's what he's very, very good at. So there's no real right or wrong way to write, right? You, you can be overly technical or you can be overly entertaining, but you just have to sort of find where in there you fit. I use the technique a lot of using pop culture references. So I'll use song lyrics. I'll use quotes. I'll use memes are extremely popular. Yes, you can still do that. I use Twitter a lot, so I'll remember tweets or, or highlight them, and then I'll quote those tweets in my posts. Um, but it's just sort of being able to pull from the world around you to uh, write something and then make it so that it's relevant to people, something that they can, can engage with. And then the last tip I would give is to just everybody out there has thoughts about things, and they think they're the only one that thinks that. So they may be working with a product or a stack or solving a problem and think this is, this is not right. This is not right. Or this is not good. Or this can't be like this. This is messed up. This is weird. How come nobody else is pointing this out? And, and your general knee jerk reaction to that is to think, well, everybody else has already figured this out. I'm the only one who doesn't know that might be, but everybody out there has this perspective on things. And I would say anytime you find yourself in a spot going, what in the world is this? That you think about turning that into a blog post and writing about it. One of the most popular posts I ever wrote was a post called OAuth Has Ruined Everything. And it was basically just a rant about how terrible OAuth was because I kept building these authentication mechanisms and using OAuth, which is a spec, it's not a specific product, and thinking, this cannot be the future. But nobody else is saying anything. So it sort of makes you feel like as a developer, oh, I'm, I'm dumb, or I don't know, or I'm not good, because nobody else is struggling with this. But I guarantee you, if you're struggling, there are a million other people just like you that are also struggling, waiting for someone to stand up and point out and go, hey, this sucks and is no fun, maybe there's a better way to do this. It, it speaks a lot to the instructions that, that I've gotten, you know, when speaking, talking, and it's, it's just going to be about, uh, you know, authenticity and sort of just open sharing and, and a little bit of vulnerability. You know, it's just like, well, I might look dumb because if there is, in fact, somebody out there that already knows the answer, you know, what am I putting myself out there Four. And you, know, you get this like stage fright anxiety thing that I, I imagine takes a little bit of time to get over. And and you're going to write and say things that just fall really flat. And, you know, your delivery is sometimes just like, wow, like, you know, that sucked. However, you know, keep at it. I think the discipline is really it's not just keep, you know, just do it the first time. It's just keep doing it. For sure. Absolutely. And to offer a bit of encouragement to people, a lot of times we're scared to write or to put our opinion out there because we're afraid that someone's going to blast us in the comments or they're going to quote us and say, look at, look at this, this stupid article that was written, right? This is the problem with everything. The thing is that 
um, technology, the technology industry has this sort of weird issue where we, it's, it's kind of like honor culture, but the honor culture is more of trying to one up each other on how smart we are. And that sort of breeds this environment where people want to call out or nitpick everything that you say and do. So if you just go into it, knowing that people are going to do that, somebody is going to blast you. It happens to me all the time. And just to keep in mind that that person that blasted you might be having a rough day. They might have, um, they might be really struggling at home, right? They could be in a, in a relationship that's breaking up. They could have a child that they're struggling with. I mean, there's so many different things that affect people and to just sort of view people through that lens and respond to those folks with, Hey, thanks so much for your input. That's a unique perspective that I've found at least in my career of doing this for eight years, everybody softens up and everybody is kind if you will sort of take the first step to do that. So not all that to say, not to be afraid to put it out there and then just recognize that there's always going to be someone who disagrees. There's always going to be someone who thinks it's a, that's a bad idea or it's a bad perspective. It's okay. That's totally fine. How has, you know, over the course of eight years is a long time to be, to rewriting, you know, if you look back at maybe some of the old work, you know, how, how's your approach and your voice developed and, and has it trended more to like that there's a, a different Burke who writes and presents than in real life, or has it trended more the, actually the other direction where your, your craft has, has started to look more like, you know, the real you? Um, I would say in the beginning, I started out trying to write very technical pieces. And I think that maybe a lot of us feel like we have to do that. Like I'm going to write a post on OAuth. So I need to know everything to know about OAuth. And I'm going to break it down at the, at, at sort of a subatomic level and explain all the inner workings of it. And what I realized is, is number one, that's not really who I am. Like, I just don't care that much. Um, there is a person on YouTube that does videos of um, all they do is videos of glitches and bugs in the game Paper Mario. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but this is a guy that's just obsessed with Paper Mario and he has broken it down at the at the subatomic level. If that's for you as a developer, that's great. For me, that was not me. What I tended to be um, fairly good at was to describe um, what is not a very depth, it's not a depth problem. It's just sort of an issue. And then to talk through that issue in a bunch of different ways, um, but bringing sort of the perspective to it of my voice when I write is kind of like, I'm a bit of a dingy developer and here's how this looks to me. And so what that allows me to do is just say and do all sorts of, um, dumb things. And it's okay because I've already sort of um, subtexted everything with, hey, I'm not really that bright, so here's what I think about this. And then if people come at me, I can say, hey, look, I told you up front I wasn't really that smart. But in my experience, there's always a ton of people that have always been like, oh, man, that's I've always wondered about that. So my voice has definitely moved just towards being okay with that and just not – I'm just not trying anymore. I'm not trying to be somebody that I'm not. I'm not – pretending to be a super technical or extremely brilliant developer. I'm not Linus Torvald. I'll, I never will be, but I'm totally fine with that. And there's so many developers that are just like me. And so my stage presence is much the same way. 
whenever I do talks, it's that same sort of persona. I don't want to say it's humility as much as it is just a certain level of self-awareness and not putting, not placing my value on how good a developer I am. That's good advice. Good advice for everybody. So before we run out of time, you know, I did, I did want to ask you, you know, um, Gosh, we get a, a tremendous amount of you know, inbound demand and developer demand for the AWS stack. And there's Azure over there doing some amazing stuff. You know, I keep up on the, the industry you know, news as, as much as I can you know, in, in this sort of insights role that I have. And um, you know, just talk a little bit about like, what's available there, because I, I do want to make sure that, that everybody is out there you know, giving all the tool sets a fair shake to solve the particular problems that are are facing them? That's a great question. Um, I've heard people, sometimes you'll hear people say all clouds are the same, which is to say that there's a lot of the same feature parity across clouds. So if you look at like GCP, Google Cloud Platform, Amazon and Azure, you'll find things like hosting, you'll find um, AI platforms, you'll find serverless. Some of the things that I think Azure does really, really well are, first of all, um, Microsoft makes VS Code. And VS Code is just an amazing editor. I've written a lot about it. And so they have they also make extensions for VS Code that allow you to work directly with Azure from inside the editor. So you can control your hosting. You can write serverless functions. You can debug all that stuff locally. You can control your databases, um, your, both your NoSQL and your SQL. All, you can write your queries. You can do all of that inside of VS Code. I, I think that sort of the advantage Microsoft has there with making the editor and also um, making Azure allows them to provide just an unparalleled level of integration into Azure services. So that's that's one thing that Azure does really, really well. Another thing that they do quite well is they have something called cognitive services, which is a set of REST APIs for adding in artificial intelligence to your projects. So if you had something like the examples that we sometimes give or say you had a comment system and it was global and you just received comments from all over the world from people buying your products and they come in in all sorts of different languages, there's an API that you can run against that that will translate everything into whatever language you need it in. We'll do a sentiment analysis to tell you which comments are, are potentially negative and then we'll also pull out any keywords that you might be looking for. So in case you're, you know, perhaps you're able to then mine that and figure out that a lot of people are complaining about your search functionality on your website. Well, you otherwise wouldn't have known that because you have a million comments that nobody has the time to read through. So it, these are things that you plug into problems that you already have. So I think one of the misconceptions about AI is that it's like something you start over and then AI does the whole problem. That's not really how it works. How it works is you have a problem, you're solving it in a lot of different ways, a lot of different pieces your code, some database, some reporting. And then there's some problem that you can't solve because you just have too much data or it's too complex. And that's where you plug in cognitive services. And they're just REST APIs, so anybody can call them. So that's another really, really neat thing that people should check out. And then I'll give one more thing. That would be something that's called Cosmos DB, which is a NoSQL database. What's really interesting about Cosmos DB, though, is that it's, it's global scale. So Azure has the advantage of having so many data centers all over the world. I think, I think we've got the most. And so what Cosmos DB does is it just allows you to replicate to any of those data centers uh, 
with the with the click of a mouse. And that gives you the benefit of when your data is close to your users, the latency goes away. There's just, if you have a database in the US and your users are in India, there's going to be serious latency there just because of where your data is. You're not going to be able to solve that with faster JavaScript or a faster service or a faster query. It's just, just logistical limitations. So Cosmos DB helps you solve those things when you're when you're at that scale. That's great. I love making people aware of you know what's available because you, you get into a rut and you start using the same tools you know sort of over and over again and you become, I think, you know sort of dogmatic about what you know and miss the new developments. Stuff is moving so fast in this space that you know it's it's really good to take a take a view out and do some experimentation and, and learning. Yeah, it's awesome. And developers have so many choices. There's so many great choices out there, which is amazing. I mean, what an amazing time to be a developer. You, you, you can't lose. It's awesome. Well, Burke, very cool to have you on, man. I appreciate the insights and uh, sort of that authentic look inside how to you know, create your own voice. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I hope all that rambling was helpful to someone somewhere. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.